Section 5, Part 5, A Narrative, etc., etc. In the morning I visited my new patient in the other vessel, who very carefully offered to do all he could in his power for me. The captain arrived soon after, having been sent for by him, and I was very warmly recommended to his good graces. Both vessels, in a short time, began to prepare for their respective cruises, and the two pirates now took leave of one another, and the captain and myself returned on board our own schooner. After having left four of the crew as a guard in the prize, her own crew being on board the Corsair, the pirate proceeded on his voyage to the Havana, accompanied by the two small schooners. All three stood up within the reef till the afternoon, when we discovered a small schooner-rigged vessel, very full of men, coming down towards us. As she was too insignificant to cause any apprehension, the captain kept on his course until within gunshot, and fired to bring her to. A boat was then dispatched on board with ten of the Dutchmen armed, with orders to search for arms and ammunition, but on no account to injure the people on board of her. In boarding her, the Dutchmen drew their swords, which so alarmed some of the Spaniards that they jumped overboard, at which the captain, who was watching them with a glass, laughed most heartily, pointing them out to me. He had the humanity, however, to dispatch another boat to their assistance, and the prize-master, who went on this last service, informed us, when he returned, that he knew most of the people on board, who were inhabitants of some of the villages along the coast. At dusk the convoy anchored for the night, and at daybreak again pursued their voyage. We had proceeded but a very little way when we perceived a large schooner on the outer edge of the reef, and I was sent to my usual post on such occasions to reconnoiter. She proved to be a merchantman, and as the wind was light, sweeps were got out to go in chase of her. We were approaching her very fast when we observed that she had dispatched a small canoe with three men towards the shore. The captain no sooner perceived this than he manned and dispatched a boat in pursuit, as he conjectured that they had specie on board. Having taken this measure, he hoisted the red flag and fired a gun at the schooner to bring her to. She immediately wore round and hoisted Spanish colors, which made the pirate believe she would engage him. He cleared the vessel for action accordingly, and fired a second shot with intent to strike her, but it fell short, though well directed. The stranger now hauled down her colors and hove to and the pirate hailed and ordered the captain on board with his papers. On his arrival on board they recognized one another as old friends, and when the pirate asked him what had induced him to dispatch his canoe ashore, he found by the reply that his conjecture had been true. The stranger had taken him for a Carthaginian privateer, and had sent what little money he had on board away. The boat in the meantime had gained upon the canoe, and having fired, wantonly too, a volley of musketry at her, had compelled the rowers to stop, but no mischief fortunately had ensued. After an interchange of civilities, the captain of the stranger returned, taking with him two cases of gin and half a dozen cheeses as a present. At night we anchored in a small bay, called by the Spaniards Morilla, 
about two leagues southwest of the Bay of Onda. As there were several piratical rowboats that frequently capture small vessels and infested the latter place, the pirate did not think his convoy out of danger until they had passed it, and therefore accompanied them thus far, and then, giving them in charge of the prize-master, returned towards the harbor, which we reached on the following evening. On his arrival there, he ran the corsair alongside the Dutch prize, and having taken out her guns and stores, had her hove down to repair some trifling damage done to her coppering, upon which the Dutch carpenter and the one belonging to the pirate were jointly employed. On the following afternoon, while they were thus occupied, and the corsair was defenseless, an American sloop of war hove in sight, and stood close along the outer edge of the reef. I felt confident that she would send in her boats to attack the pirates, and trembled between hope and fear. Hope, because that event might procure me my liberty, and fear, lest being found among this horde of miscreants, my tale should be disbelieved, and myself confounded with them, and subjected to the same ignominious and disgraceful end. That she could not see the pirates and distinctly discern all their movements, I will never believe, for I could plainly perceive her men and officers walking the deck. Nay, so apprehensive were the pirates that they would be attacked, that they all gathered round and entreated the captain to right the schooner and take measures of defense. The captain, however, appeared to know his man, and to hold him in thorough contempt. "'When I see them hoist out their boats,' cried he, "'I will believe they are in earnest, but the Americans always boast more than they perform, and they will not attempt to attack us. Were they English, I should be afraid.' His conclusions were just, for the American took no notice whatever, and very quietly pursued his way. With them ceased my hopes and my apprehensions, but Serafina appeared to me in the shape of my delivering angel. In the course of the afternoon I went on shore to visit her father, whom I found much better, and, having discharged my duty towards him, had my usual interview with my fair and amiable friend. Her eyes and her countenance beamed love and joy when she entered the room, and I immediately perceived that she had some welcome intelligence to communicate. "'I have arranged all,' cried she passionately, throwing herself into my arms. "'The guide is in readiness, and it only remains for us to fix the time and find the opportunity.' I clasped the dear lovely creature in my arms. I was too agitated to speak, and, while I held her to my heart, shed over her tears of joy and gratitude.' She was the first who recovered her self-possession, and, blushing to find herself in that situation, gently disengaged herself from my arms, and advised me to be on my guard, and not let any one see my emotion. "'Do not be so agitated,' cried she. "'The time is short, and we have much to think of. Therefore, let us make the most of it to render our plans effective.' After many schemes had been proposed and rejected by turns, it was agreed that I should come over late on the second evening, under pretense of performing some surgical operation on her father, that she would in the meantime have the horses and guide in waiting at a short distance, and take every precaution to prevent a discovery. Our conversation was now interrupted by the entrance of several villagers, 
who, having heard of my cures, had come to me for medical advice. As I was cautious of giving umbrage to the captain, I declined giving any advice without his consent, and, to avoid importunity, told the prize-master, who always accompanied me as a guard, that I was ready to return on board the schooner. On our arrival at the vessel we found a boat alongside, belonging to the magistrate of a village about ten miles off, who had sent to beg some gin, cheese, and other articles from the pirate. Anxious to keep on good terms at all times with these authorities, the boat was laden with presents and sent back. Can it be a matter of surprise that these miscreants have committed their lawless depredations for so long a time, and with such impunity, when the very men whose duty it was to extirpate them were daily encouraging them, when the pirate could boast that the magistrate was his friend, and receive in the face of all the laws of his country and of nations such proofs of his friendship as to be enabled to thwart all hostile measures adopted against him? European nations may send out their crusades against them, but while the execution of the laws is placed in such hands, while pirates plunder and the magistrates and his myrmidons share, all their efforts will be vain, and, like the hydra, when they destroy one head, a fresh one will supply its place. The night passed without any particular occurrence, and in the morning the American sloop of war again hove in sight. The Corsair's repairs had been completed the preceding day, and she had been righted. The captain, therefore, out of bravado, said, As the Yankee will not come to me, I will go to him. I certainly expected that the experiment would cost him dear, but of his real object I was not aware until we had got without the reef. Having attracted the attention of the American and induced him to chase the Corsair, he ran into an intricate channel with the hopes of destroying him on the rocks. This he could do with impunity, as the pilots were well acquainted with every part of the reef. He made the experiment three or four times, but the American was too wary, and perceived his object. I thought at least that after this he would send in his boats, but no, he took no further notice of him, and stood quietly on, although the pirate had actually fired at him and insulted his flag. In the evening I finished the sail which I had commenced some time before, at which I worked till bedtime, and then stretched myself on my mattress, in anxious expectation of the day that was to restore me to liberty, and deliver me from the hands of these miscreants. The greatest part of the night was passed in sleepless agitation, between hope and fear, weighing in my mind every obstacle that might arise to oppose my escape, and the means to obviate them. Towards morning I sunk into a profound sleep, from which I did not wake till called to visit the sick. The wished-for and important moment was now fast approaching, and I told the pirate that I should want to go on shore to perform some necessary operations upon the magistrate. After some trifling questions, leave was granted, and at five in the evening, with a beating heart, I descended the Corsair's side, as I hoped, for the last time. On our arrival at the house I found my reception unusually cold and formal. The mother looked at me with an air of anger and distrust, and Serafina stood behind her, pale, and her cheeks bathed in tears. The moment she caught my eye she made a signal to me to be silent, 
and in the most anxious agitation I passed into the sick man's chamber. "'Well, sir,' said he, "'I have detected you in your base and nefarious plans.' My presence of mind did not forsake me. I pretended not to understand him, and, with an assumed appearance of alarm and surprise, exclaimed, "'Good sir, I hope you are not delirious. I hope your wound has not taken an unfavorable turn.' and, taking him by the pulse, immediately pulled out a lancet, saying, I must bleed him, as he was in a high fever. The coolness and presence of mind with which I uttered this completely staggered him, and he actually seemed to believe himself to be delirious, and that all was the effect of a disordered mind. He then asked me if I had made such proposals to his daughter. Sir, I replied with my former coolness, your suspicions are an insult to your daughter, for had I been bold and villainous enough to have made such a proposal, she would have rejected it with contempt, and been the first to have informed you of it. Serafina, who had been listening, now entered the room, and he addressed himself to her, and she boldly, and with an indignant air, denied the accusation. What? exclaimed the astonished father. Did not the very guide you hired inform me? Sir, replied she, bursting into tears, that guide, as you call him, is a base and infamous wretch, and I will no longer screen him from your displeasure. He met me in the forest the other day, and took some very indecent liberties with me, and because I threatened to make it known to you, declared he would tell you that I wanted to elope with the Englishman. That I highly esteem him I do not deny, and it would be ungrateful if I did not, after he has saved your life. Here she sobbed loudly, and the old magistrate so completely believed her that the mother was called in, and all matters amicably settled, the old man vowing vengeance against the rascally guide. The report of my intended escape had, however, transpired, and as my not performing any operation on the magistrate might give a color to it, I thought proper to bleed him, telling him that his blood was in a bad state and required it. Serafina took an opportunity of informing me that the guide she had engaged had insisted upon having fifty dollars in advance, and having paid it him, he had no sooner received the money than he basely betrayed her secret. She told me, however, that she would endeavor to obtain a more faithful one, and, in the meantime, begged I would place the utmost reliance on her exertions and on her discretion. She had now given such proofs of her sincerity as well as of her firmness that I did not doubt her, and although I left her disappointed, still I was not hopeless. I saw that my attendants were grown excessively suspicious of me, and watched my motions closely, but I took no notice of it and proceeded as usual to the boat. One thing, however, threw a gloom over my mind. The captain had declared that when my services were no longer wanted, he would kill me, as it would be dangerous to let me escape now I had obtained a knowledge of the reefs, for I should lead the English men of war there. This proposal had been rejected by the prize-master and some of the crew, whose good will I had gained. This intelligence I had received in confidence from the cook, and I now dreaded that this report would afford a pretext for my murder. The captain's behavior, however, was different from what I expected. 
At first he was violent, but on my repeating Serafina's statement to the magistrate, and the prize-master confirming mine of having bled the old man, he became pacified, but declared that the magistrate must come to me for the future. He then ordered me to go below to bed. On the following day, the crew were chiefly employed in lading boats sent by the priests and magistrates of the different villages, with gin, cheeses, and other presents, and nothing of consequence occurred. On the day after, the other prize-master returned from the Havana with a merchant schooner, the owner of which was come to purchase the remainder of the Dutchman's cargo. The assassin, who had been dispatched to murder Mr. Lumsden, returned on board of her and reported that his intended victim had sailed some time before his arrival. The schooner was loaded in the course of that day, and on my making up the account of the purchase, the captain desired me to tell the crew that the amount was eight hundred dollars less than it really was, with a threat to murder me if I betrayed the secret. On the following morning, the schooner, having completed her cargo, sailed for the Havana, and was convoyed by the pirate as far as the Morilia, when he left her to proceed by herself, and anchored in the bay. On that afternoon, the third mate of the Corsair left the vessel to proceed over land on a party of pleasure, and was to stop for that evening at a small village called Cavancas. I have reason to believe, however, that it was something more than a mere party of pleasure that had taken him to the Havana. The succeeding day presented another scene of atrocity and murder. In the morning, while at anchor, a sail was discovered in the offing, and, in order to alter the sailing of the schooner, the crew were employed in removing some of the ballast more aft. In this place, the French cook of the Dutch prize was placed for security, as, since his capture, the ill-treatment which he had undergone and terror combined had affected his mind, and he had shown evident symptoms of insanity. The inhuman wretches teased the poor maniac until they made him rave, and in his frenzy he caught hold of a hatchet and wounded one of his tormentors. The blow was no sooner given than the rest plunged their knives into his body and threw him overboard while yet breathing, accompanying their barbarity with most horrid expressions. I was on the top during this scene, but was called down to dress the wounded man. Having performed this task, I returned to my station, but the morning was hazy, and it was long before I could obtain a distinct view of the stranger. The captain, however, had been up and ascertained her to be an English brig with full quarters and a white streak. The vessel was then got under way, and the deck cleared for action. While this was doing, the gunner informed him that there were not cartridges enough made up for a long action should she resist, and the novel task was assigned to me to assist in making more. While thus employed, another vessel was seen, and I was called up to look at her. She also proved to be an English brig. The vessel of which we were in chase, however, still continued her course, and took no notice of the Corsair, although several guns had been fired and American colors hoisted. The captain was furious and ordered another gun to be fired, of which she took no notice. The wind was light, and sweeps were then ordered out to gain upon her. As we approached, the long gun was shotted and fired, which produced the desired effect, and the brig brought two. 
the American colors were then hauled down, and the red flag hoisted, and the boat let down to board her. Six armed men were ordered into her for that purpose, and myself and a pilot directed to accompany them. I wished to avoid this unpleasant duty, but, on appearing to hesitate, I was threatened with a repetition of the cruelties I had already undergone. With a bursting heart, I complied, and was enjoined, with the most dreadful threats, to hold no communication with the captain or crew, while the pilot was directed to throw the former overboard, and, when he had tacked the brig toward shore, to send me back. On our way, I prevailed upon the pilot, with whom I had some influence, to disobey the dreadful mandate. When we reached her, we were met by the captain of the brig at the gangway, who asked us who and what we were, to which I was obliged to give an evasive answer by saying that the corsair was a privateer. After we had been on board the brig a short time and had tacked her towards the shore, a musket was fired from the corsair, and I was desired by the pilot to tell the captain and his crew to go into the boat and go on board the pirate. The captain, who had been regarding me steadfastly for some time, now claimed acquaintance with me. His face appeared familiar to me, I must confess, but his name I did not know, and, being well aware that all my motions were watched, I deemed it most prudent, for the present, to plead ignorance. Fearful that the pirate's boat would be too crowded, I recommended the captain to lower his own boat, but he declined, saying it was leaky and not in a condition to go on the water. We then left the brig, the captain expressing a wish that he should not be long detained, and still apparently ignorant of the schooner being a pirate, to which I replied I could not answer, as the captain was angry with him for having given so much trouble. On our reaching the corsair's deck, the pirate, in a rough tone, asked him his name, and he replied, Cook. I then recognized him as a casual acquaintance. From the fury in which I saw the pirate, I anticipated the most serious consequences to the poor fellow, and, in order to save him, if possible, claimed relationship, and told him he was my cousin, and that, therefore, for my sake, and in consideration of the services that I had done for him, he would not maltreat Captain Cook. For once I prevailed over his brutal disposition, and he promised not to do so if the other told him the whole truth as to what money he had and what was his cargo. The bills of lading were then handed to me, and I informed him that it consisted of rum only. Having been informed by Captain Cook that the vessel in sight was either a transport with troops or the brig Vittoria from Black River, Jamaica, I was sent up to examine, and from her appearance pronounced her to be the transport. Captain Cook was, however, ordered to look at her, and he, being better acquainted with the vessel, said it was the Vittoria, and chase was given immediately, much, however, against the will of the crew, who were afraid of her being the transport. The crew of the industry, the vessel he had just captured, were ordered to the guns, in case of an engagement, and the corsair, for the breeze had now freshened, fast approached her chase. Notwithstanding the promise he had made, the pirate still exhibited an inclination to vent his fury on Captain Cook, and I was occasionally obliged to interfere to save him from its effects. 
I have been told, since my arrival in this country, that Captain Cook has declared and boasted that he resisted the pirate, and did not quit his vessel until a round shot had been fired between his masts, and a volley of musketry on his deck. I am willing to give him every credit for his anxiety to save his vessel, and am ready to acknowledge that he did all that an unfortunate man in his situation could do, but I must deny the truth of his assertions on this point. The shot that was fired was across the bow of the industry, and fell short by more than a hundred yards, and as to musketry, with the solitary exception of the signal to the captain and crew on board, none was discharged. As for resistance, none whatever was made, and for a good reason. It was out of his power to make any. The Corsair, being a very rapid sailor, soon came within range of the Vittoria, and the long gun was fired athwart her bows, which she answered by hoisting her colors and breaking her main-yard. A pilot, for we had several, was then ordered to repair on board, accompanied by me, with directions to send the brig's officers and part of her crew on board. Our arrival was a signal for a repetition of the same brutal act towards the unfortunate crew of this vessel that had been exercised towards those of the other, and the officers and some of the men were driven into the boat. The sails were then filled, and the brig steered after the Corsair, who was now returning towards the coast in the direction of Cape Blanco. Soon after this, the atmosphere became dense and hazy, and it began to rain, and we were suddenly thrown into great alarm by the appearance of a strange schooner, who seemed to chase us. The man who was at first at the wheel had been changed, and his successor was not so good a steersman. As the wind was abaft the beam, we set steering sails by the pilot's direction to get away from the stranger, but the man steered so badly that the pirate began to be apprehensive of capture, and rated him for his awkwardness. The furious gesticulations of the Spaniard only confused the poor fellow, and made him steer worse. This added fuel to fire, and he began to suspect it was I that was making him do so, to enable the schooner to overtake us. He then turned upon me, and told me that if I did not make him steer more steadily, he would take his knife and kill him. I knew that to threaten, with these wretches, was to perform. In order, therefore, to save the man's life, I pretended to be enraged with him, and struck him lightly across the back with the flat part of a cutlass. This act, though done with the best and purest of motives, and from a desire to save the life of a fellow creature, has since been adduced against me as a proof that I joined in the brutalities of these blood-stained miscreants, and took a delight in them. Such is the gratitude that man has to expect from his fellow man. End of section 5 Part 5